said, it's already been a full morning. We're super excited. Um, not to shame anybody, but I feel like we need to have a Lions playoff game every Sunday because so many of you are here bright and early. I'm excited for you. There's apparently Sunday best is now Lions apparel. Who, who would have ever thought that that would be a truism in Michigan from the last 25 years? Uh, I hope go team or roar lion. There you go. Um, my name's Alex. If I don't know you, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're super excited, obviously, uh, to have you here to worship along with us as we point our eyes and our hearts towards Jesus. Um, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we started this new series in the book of Daniel, and we're looking at what it looks like to live in a hostile culture. And speaking about a hostile culture, today it's, it's kind of fitting um, today is what is known as Sanctity of Life Sunday, and it's an opportunity for us as the church and as believers to remember what every individual that's born into this world, even those who are pre-born, that every individual has meaning and significance and value, regardless of background, ethnicity, regardless of all of these things, every life has value. And uh, we're going to put that uh, screen back up, that image right here. But as a church, we partner with different organizations that are focused on Christ and in delivering and showing the love of Christ. And so if you want more information about different organizations that our church supports uh, and different ways for you to get involved and in how you can be a part of just uh, protecting and valuing life, we want to encourage you to do so. All of the information is there on our website. Um, because the reality is, is that as believers, we live in a hostile culture that wants to celebrate and embrace this ideology that, hey, you can do whatever you want whenever you want. That life doesn't ultimately matter. That someone else's life doesn't ultimately matter if it infringes upon your life and your freedom. And in this series, as we look at this kind of overarching theme, not only in the book of Daniel, but really all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. As believers today, we have to kind of look at these stories and look at these moments and say, God, what is it that we are called to do? How is it that we mimic what we see your people, your faithful men and your faithful women out of the scriptures, how our lives can reflect them as they pursued you and as they sought to live in line with you? And some of it can be pretty easy. Some of it could just be, okay, well, he did this, so therefore we're going to do this as well. In today's story, it's a little bit different in that the principle is easy, but the way it plays out is a little bit unique. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 3. Uh, just as a disclosure, I am not going to read the entire chapter of Daniel 3. Because that really, I mean, we could do that, read that, that's our sermon, and we all go and watch the Lions game. But we want to keep you here a little bit longer and make you sweat it out. Uh, but Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to be focused this morning. And it's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men in their uh, defiance of what was being uh, expected of everyone that lived in the empire, in the Babylonian empire at that time. So a little bit of context, a little bit of history from the last two weeks. We've talked about it. The Jews at this point in time, they've been overtaken and overrun by the Babylonian Empire. The leader of that empire is King Nebi, Nebuchadnezzar. 
a long morning, guys. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Daniel has, has kind of been our main focus. Daniel is a man who is faithful to God. And Daniel is a man who, because of the, of the gifts that God has given him, Daniel has found himself now in the high court of the king, being able to interpret dreams and visions that the king was having. And it being fully known that Daniel followed the Almighty. Not the God of the Babylonian Empire, not any other kind of pagan God, but God Almighty Yahweh. And Daniel, as we saw last week and the week before, just these different stories and moments with the king and the king seeing Daniel's faith and being impressed by it and still choosing not to cast him out and not to um, put him out of the empire. Today's story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are also followers of Yahweh. They are friends with Daniel. And what they are doing is they are also in the king's high court, meaning they had an audience with the king. They had the opportunity to be around the king. Um, they were leading different provinces within the empire. These were men who were in high stature inside the empire. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, for some reason, probably because of the vision and the dream that he had previously in chapter 2, he makes a decision, I'm going to build a statue. And I'm going to build this statue made out of gold. And this statue, if you look in chapter 3, it gives it in cubits. Uh, if you kind of translate that into modern day measurements, a 90 foot tall, 9 feet wide golden statue. Just kind of imagine that for a moment. A 90 foot tall golden statue. It'd be kind of an impressive thing to see. And it being completely made out of gold. And what the king continued to say was, here's what's going to happen. Any time that the music is played, specific song, any time this music is played, everyone in the empire, when you hear it, they must bow down, looking towards that statue, bow down and worship it. And if you do not do this, you will be thrown into a fiery furnace. Because for the king, the statue resembled something important to him. We don't know from the text if it was his own image. We don't know what God it was made in the image of. All we know is that he built this statue and he gave this edict saying, when the music plays, bow down and worship it. In our culture today, are there things that are built up that we as followers of Christ are expected to bow down and worship? And that's kind of what we're looking at today is this reality of how, how can we have courageous faith living in a hostile culture? And how is it that we as followers of Christ, how is it that we can reject idolatrous worship in this culture? Now, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was super easy for them in the sense that they saw something tangible that they were being told to do. When you see the statue and you hear the music, bow down and worship. I think it's pretty safe to say for all of us that we don't have that struggle, right? There's not this command or this edict out there that says, hey, when you see a certain thing or when you hear a certain song, you must bow down and worship this particular image. We don't have that struggle. For us, our struggle is a little bit more intangible, meaning most of the cultural idolatry that we face today is more so in ideologies, in principles, 
than it is in something that's tangible. In the ancient world, they would often have uh, idols created for the sake of worship. They would say, let's create this idol, whether it's made out of uh, material, like fine material, gold material, metal, whatever it is, or it's made out of wood. But let's set this up and have it be our centering point, and this is how we're going to worship our God. Whether it's the God of wisdom, or the God of the earth, or the God of the sea, or the God of food, or the God of, you just keep naming it, the ancient world had some kind of pagan deity related to it. And oftentimes, there was some type of image associated with it that people would set up in their home and have their own little home shrine. Or there would be a local temple in the cities that everybody was instructed to go to and worship. And for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's what they faced. That's what they saw. It wasn't just the 90-foot golden statue that they had to deal with. More than likely, in the Babylonian Empire, there were other idols and other shrines and other temples that the expectation was you go to these places and pray to these gods. For us, again, we don't have those things necessarily tangibly in front of us. But all of us face it. All of us face this draw to say, how do, am I supposed to worship this ideology or this thought or this idol that is present here in our culture. So what are some potential cultural idols that we have here in the United States today? I would say that one of those things is identity. We have this cultural idol that identity should be worshipped. Identity meaning your identity. If you feel some, if you feel a particular way, you can live in that way. And if anybody around you tells you that that way is wrong, they are the bigots, they are hateful, they are vindictive, they are in the wrong, and you, as you seek to find out your true identity, all power to you. Right? Think about it. Think about the media that you consume. Think about the shows that you watch, or the movies that you watch, or the news articles that you read about, or even policies that the government brings down to say, hey, if somebody's pursuing their identity, you cannot disagree with them. Because if you do, you are being hateful. You are being vindictive. You are choosing hatred over love. Everybody kind of understand where we're going here? Yeah? It's a cultural idolatry that we have. Your identity is the most important thing about you. Your identity should be pursued after. Your identity should be the most important thing. And everybody around you should also see the identity that you are claiming and that you are embracing. And again, if they don't accept you because of the identity that you chose, they're in the wrong. More power to you. You do you. But as followers of God, we recognize identity is not something that we pursue in and of ourselves. Identity is something that God gives us through his son, Jesus. As a follower of Christ, our identity is no longer in ourselves or in the world, but our identity is found in Jesus. Even if you're not a believer, your identity is given to you by God because he has created you man and woman. That's the baseline identity. And so as followers of Jesus... We have to be able to recognize what kind of cultural idols are pressing in around us. 
And if you don't see or you don't feel, you know what, this cultural idolatry, let's say, of identity is pressing in around you, I want to kind of challenge you to kind of open your eyes a little bit more. Read the news in a different light. Talk to your kids. Ask them what's going on in their middle schools, in their high schools. Watch the shows that they watch. Listen to the music that they listen to. And you're going to hear this constant pressing in, hey, you be you. Hey, you do this. Hey, you'll be totally fine. Hey, this is totally, completely okay. Hey, this is normal for you to feel this way. Hey, it's okay if nobody else believes you when you say that you're a furry. If you don't know what a furry is, you actually do need to go and look it up. Because it's a very real thing that's growing in the lives of our teenagers today. Where you can find your identity because it's the most important thing in your life. You can go and find it. And this cultural idolatry is even starting to kind of infiltrate and press in a little bit into the church. Well, hey, you know what? That word that you're talking about here in the scripture, it wasn't, it wasn't really introduced into the translation until 1943. And so that word really didn't exist before. So your interpretation of God's word is wrong. Oh, yeah, we're not going to look at those other verses because those are all in context with these very specific small groups of people. So ignore those verses because we don't like them. And instead, just you be you. You be free. Because what you're doing is trying to love yourself. And if God is a God of love, then this loving thing that you're trying to pursue and go after, then therefore must be of God. By God's grace, our church is not like that. By God's grace, our church will never be like that. By God's grace, you will understand how to identify all of the things that are pressing in, not only in the church, but in your kid's life, in your own life, in the world and culture around you. So again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they kind of had it a little easy in this example. Because they knew when the music played, we had to look at the statue, we had to bow down and worship it. For you and I today, we have to be able to identify what are the idols around us that culture is pressing in to say, hey, you need to embrace this. Hey, you need to engage in this. Because if you don't, we're going to shame you. And it's not just identity, right? It's not just that one idol of identity. It can be something even more, what's the word? Comfort. Is there a cultural idolatry of comfort? Hey, you need to work this job at the expense of your family in order for you to be comfortable. Hey, you need to put your kids at this school in order for you to feel comfortable. Hey, you need to aspire to live in this one neighborhood over here because you need to feel comfortable. Hey, all of these different things in your life, you have to think through the lens and the filter of your own comfort. Now, when we read the scriptures, does it say, go and live in the woods and have no possessions? Does it say that? Eh, nobody really wants to be bold and brave. That's fine, guys. It's fine. Right? 
Did the scripture say, hey, if you choose to follow Jesus, if you have him as the Lord of your life, everything in your life will be completely fine? Oh, very bold in that response. Yeah. Then why is it, like for me, why is it that I crave that comfort in the world? Man, if I made just a little bit more money, then I'd be okay. Man, you know what? If I had that F-250, my life would be completely perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> If I had all of these things, I would have comfort. You know what? These people over here, they're really difficult for me to be around. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to retreat from these people. And I'm just going to create my bubble. And I'm going to live in my bubble. And I'm going to have my bubble. And my bubble will be perfect. And my bubble will say no to any kind of conflict to any kind of negativity around me because I'm going to live inside my bubble and I'm going to be comfortable. When you read the scriptures, just like you guys affirmed, there's no guarantee or promise of that. But yet culture around us says, hey, this is what you need to pursue. Hey, this is what's important. And I think you even find that in churches. This is what Jesus wants for you. This is how you can have the best life. This is what it looks like. So begin, as a follower of Christ, begin to think through and evaluate and say, what cultural idols am I embracing that I'm not even aware of? Because our call as followers of Jesus is to reject those idols. It's to be able, one, to identify them, and two, to say, in God's word, what are we called to do in light of this? And then the next question is, well, how do we do something like that? So if we go back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They already had, they already had the edict from there in verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship immediately shall be cast into a burning furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chose not to do it. And there was another group of men and women in the, high, in the king's high court who said, hey, we really despise the Jews. And we're going to watch these three guys. So they start watching these three guys. The music plays. They don't bow down to worship the idol. And then what do those individuals do? They go directly to Nebuchadnezzar. And they say this to him. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. This is down in verse 12. They pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So what happens here is that they refuse to compromise. Have you ever been in a situation where you have to kind of weigh your options? If I say what I want to say, here's the potential result of what's going to occur. And this result comes along with some consequences to it. So how do I say what needs to be said and mitigate the consequences that I'll feel? Anybody ever had to do that before? Okay, if you're a parent, you do it all the time. You're just not aware that you do it. Because if you discipline your kid and you say, hey, no more screen time, then that means you have to engage with your kid. Which sometimes can be a punishment for adults. Let's just be honest, parents, okay? I know all of you, I see you, like I know what you do. But sometimes you have to kind of weigh and you think through different things. Like, okay, 
in my response, how do I mitigate the consequences? How do I kind of lessen the consequences but still say what I know I need to say, but can I say it in such a way where I'm not going to get as much, you know, feedback, negative feedback in this? For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't really have a choice. You either bow down and worship or you don't. They already knew what their consequence was going to be. They knew we're going to get thrown into the furnace. Because we've seen Nebuchadnezzar in his past do things even worse than this. So we know he's not just blowing smoke and he's not just kind of exaggerating what his consequences are going to be. So these three men, they're having to wrestle with this challenge of we know what the consequence is. What will our actions be? And the scriptures don't tell us this, but I, I, I want to kind of imagine and I think there's some freedom here to do this. I want to imagine that the three of those guys probably talked together. That they didn't just randomly all appear in the same courtyard and say, hey, I decided not to do this. Oh, I decided not to do it too. Oh, I decided not to do it either. Sweet, we're all in agreement. Let's move forward. More than likely, probably what happened, these three guys who were in community together said, hey, how are we going to respond to this? We are followers of Yahweh. We are followers of the Almighty God. How are we going to respond to this? More than likely, they probably weighed some of their options. But think about that. Um, anybody, anybody here go to the gym? I know we're still in January, so your gym membership is still active. Okay, nobody raise their hand. Okay, one person raised their hand that goes to the gym. Okay, don't feel like you got to th throw it up there now to justify yourself. Um, like when you go to the gym, there's a very important thing you got to do before you start lifting any kind of weights. You got to stretch. And what you're stretching, you're not actually stretching the muscle that you're intending to work on. Instead, what you do is you stretch all of the muscles and the tendons and the ligaments. You stretch everything that supports that one muscle that you're trying to work on. So if you're trying to build bigger biceps, right? You don't stretch out your bicep before you start doing lifts. You stretch out your shoulder. You stretch out, I really should have researched my anatomy before. <laughs> you stretch out your tricep, your deltoids, right? Your shoulder ligaments, all these different things. But you stretch out all of these other things so that your body has the full support to stabilize you as you're actually working on the muscle that you want to work on. If you don't do that, if you don't stretch out everything else and then you go immediately to try to lift, what potentially could happen is you tear or you break something on and in you. So let's apply that to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How were they stabilized? To be able to make a decision knowing this decision is going to cost us our life. As believers, how can we stabilize ourselves in a hostile culture so that when we have to make decisions against what culture says, that we can do so from a stable environment, from a stable place? How do we do that? We talk about it every single Sunday. Know God's word. Right? Later, we'll see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They give a reason why they, don't, why they are not going to bow down and worship. And they say, because God's command says, you shall have no other idols and no other gods before me. So they knew God's word. 
it guided them and it showed them how they were supposed to respond. How, what else did they have to help stabilize them? They probably had each other. They had that community together. Hey, we all realize what we're about to do, right? Yeah. I'm a little scared. Are you a little scared? I mean, we should be. We're going to go get burned up. Right? Don't, don't get in your mind. I think sometimes this happens to us. I think we get in our mind these stories of heroes and the stories of faith where these individuals, when they're going to face something immense and potentially dangerous, that they just walk into it valiantly. I'm a hero. I choose to invite the furnace into my life. <laughs> like, for me, and I, God, I could be completely wrong. But I imagine because they're men and they're humans, they probably had a little bit of fear. They probably had a little bit of anxiety and nervousness. They had what's called emotions. And they had to wrestle with those emotions. God, Shadrach, Meshach, like, I'm freaked out. But I know what God's word says. Hey, let's pray. Hey, are, are, are we sure that this is what we're supposed to do? Yeah, man, like I, I don't see anywhere else in, in our scripture that says anything otherwise. We have to do this because of our love and our faithfulness towards God. That act of community is a stabilizing thing. Another thing, right? So you've got knowing God's word. You've got community. What's something else? I would say it's relationship. It's a relationship. These men who were in this high place of authority, they very easily could have just kind of adapted to the culture around them. And they could have just gone with the flow of life and the flow of the empire and never been countercultural and never gone against the grain. They had that opportunity to do that. But because not only did they know God's word, not only did they have community, but because of their love and their commitment and their obedience to God, they were able to make that hard decision. To refuse to compromise. Think about it in your relationships. Right? Transactional relationships. The moment that you don't deliver on something. Or the moment that you don't uh, respond back accordingly to that other person. Perhaps that other person drops and leaves you and moves on to the next person. Or perhaps you feel like you're in a relationship where you have to do all of these certain things in order for the person to respond with all of these certain things. It's called a transactional relationship. In marriages, that tends to be what people default towards when there's struggle and strife. Okay, well, man, if I just start doing this, 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 and this, then my wife for sure is going to be okay with this, 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 and this. But sometimes it doesn't work that way. Because we're not robots. And because a relationship is not built on following rules and do's and don'ts. A relationship is built on, I know who you are, and because of who you are, I love you, I value you, I desire you, I want to be with you, and I'm committed to you, and I'm going to stay the course even when we go through conflict and strife. And I'm going to work with you, and together with you, we're going to get through this moment. Our relationship with God. Is your relationship built on all the do's and don'ts? Or is your relationship built on, I see who you really are, God, and I love you. 
I see your compassion. I see your grace. I see your mercy. I see your faithfulness towards me. God, I want to honor you and love you, and I'm staying committed to you, even though I know I'm about to go and be killed. These three men refused to compromise. Um, when I was eight years old, um, at the time, I was living in southern Louisiana. We had a lot of crawfish boils and a lot of Creole Cajun music, and it was a wonderful time as a kid. My neighbors, all my friends on my street, we all went to the same church. All my friends at my, at my elementary and middle school, we all went to the same church. It, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and every other event that was there at the church, my family was there. And I remember it was a Sunday night sermon. The pastor was talking about what it is to be saved and why we need to be saved from our sins and that Jesus is the only one who can save us. I remember responding to that moment later that night with my dad, praying with him and becoming a follower of Jesus that night. A couple weeks later, I get baptized. But life didn't really change for me very much. All my friends and community, we already all went to church together. We were all kind of good kids. Um... But life really wasn't a challenge. Life really wasn't a struggle. We still did all the things and, you know, everything was good. And then at the age of 13, my dad takes the family out to dinner and says, hey, we're moving to England. I got a new job out there. We're headed out there. My friends in southern Louisiana literally asked me, do you have to learn a new language? <laughs> England. Um, so we moved over there, and I'm so excited. I'm this 13-year-old, like, oh, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. Everybody's, everybody's going to think I'm cool because I'm American. We moved to this small little town on the northeast coast of England, and there weren't any other Americans there. Their idea of Americans were Dr. Dre and Eminem. I didn't really look like either one of those guys. But we're there. And I'm trying to continue to live my life as a follower of Jesus. And guess what? When you tell people you go to church, this was, oh, man. When you think about the, the, how old you are, it really kind of humbles you. This is 30 years ago. Is that right? I can't do math right now. Um, 30 years ago, it was, you were looked at as an oddball for saying you go to church. Why would you go to church? Only old people go to church. I see all my old friends over here. Like, only old people go to church. It's archaic. It's dead and it's dying. Why would you do that? What is this, what is this music group you're talking about? DC Talk? They sound very odd. What, what is this show that you watch as a kid? Veggie Tales? That seems really weird. What is this bracelet you have? WWJD? What does that even mean? What is this thing? Chick, Chick-fil-A? Just Jesus Chicken? Which, side note, by the way, Chick-fil-A finally invaded into England, and I think they just opened their first store this last year, so praise God. Um, but, like, it was this super odd thing to tell people that you were a follower of Christ and that you went to church. And what happened for me as a teenager, there was moments of compromise. Because I was already the oddball out. I was already weird looking. And nobody really wanted to talk about why it was that I lived my life or tried to live my life in a way that followed Jesus. And it wasn't until I started to find community there of other believers, and it wasn't until I started to recognize the cultural impact and influence on me 
and then every summer to come back to the States, go to a student ministry camp, and to be convicted and uh, comforted and challenged by God to go back and live kind of like a missionary back over there. It wasn't until all these things of community and knowing God's word and in this relationship with Christ that I began to realize I have to stop making compromises. And I'm going to be a little different and odd. So I share that with you. What compromises are you making in your life? Is your relationship with Christ built on an actual relationship or is it built on rituals and practices? Right? We just heard Brian's testimony and the way that he grew up and all the things he had known for so many years and recognizing that there was nothing there. It was just completely empty because the relationship wasn't there. So if you want to be able to refuse to compromise, how are you strengthened? How are you built up? How are you supported? How are you stabilized in order to say no, to not compromise? And then the last thing we see from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let's, let's jump back into the story and we'll see what happens. So they don't bow down. Those guys go and tell the king. And then the king calls them to the court, right? And he says, is it true that you guys are not bowing down and worshiping this idol? And he goes on further down here in verse 15. And who is this God that will deliver you out of my hands? Because I'm throwing you into the furnace. You can either bow down right now when the music starts or I'm throwing you in the furnace. And what God is really going to rescue you out of that? And then listen to their response. Verse 17. If this be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. So he ordered them to be quickly thrown into the furnace. And because it was such a fast process, the furnace was overheating. And it says here later on in the verses that the men, King Nebuchadnezzar's men, who brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, they actually caught fire and they died. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the furnace. And the king, at some point, has got, he's got some kind of vantage point looking down in the furnace. And it says in verse 24, Then the king was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three bound men into the fire? And they responded to him and said, true. And he said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt in the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they trusted that God would deliver them. They trusted that God would be with them. They trusted that God was already with them and would continue to be with them. So if you want to know how to combat a hostile culture today, trust in God's deliverance of you. And it may mean that he doesn't pull you away from, he doesn't pull you out of a fire, but instead he's with you in that fire. 
and he keeps you from getting burned. Think about that. So often when we see and think about deliverance, we think about it in just keep me away from all the bad things in the world. Just keep me away from the pain. Keep me away from the conflict. Keep me away from all of these things. But time over time over time when you look in God's word, he doesn't do that. Instead, he comes down with you. And he says, I know you're in that furnace. I know you're dealing with this. I know you're walking through this. I understand and I see you and I am with you in it. And you still have to walk through it. But because I'm with you, you're not going to get burned. Because I'm with you, I'm going to be able to bring you out of it eventually. Because I am with you. Jesus, the end of his uh, life and the end of his ministry on earth, right? He's already been crucified. He's resurrected. He's been on the earth for several days meeting and talking with his disciples, trying to encourage them and tell him, you know, really, it's me, right? Look, you see the holes in my hands. And right before he ascends back into heaven for the final time, he tells his disciples, here's what I need you to do. Go and tell people. Go and tell people. Baptize them. Teach them everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you to the end of your days. Church, Jesus is with you. We do not have the luxury of putting our head in the sand and pretending that bad things around us don't exist. Instead, what we have to do is lift our head up and say, I really don't want to walk through this. But Jesus, I know you're with me. Jesus, I know you're going to guide me. Jesus, I understand you're going to help me through this moment and through this time. I've been built up. I've been stabilized. I know I've got my people. I've got your word. I've got my relationship with you. I'm growing. I'm repenting of sin. I'm doing all of these things. And I'm seeing all of the pressures and dangers around me trying to influence me and redirect me. And God, I'm choosing to remember and trust that you will deliver me out of whatever it is that I am in. And that's what Jesus does. Again, Jesus doesn't come to pluck you up and put you over here in a special pen. Jesus says, I'm covering you. And as you're in this world, and as your life is reflecting me, I will continue to deliver you. Look at the final thing. Verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, rose up, rised up. Uh, verse 26, servants of the most high God come out and come here. Verse 28, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their God. Therefore, I, the king, make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you'll be torn from limb from limb, and your houses and lands will be in ruins. For there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. The reason why God delivers you, the reason why Jesus walks with you through those things, yes, he loves and cares about you, but the reason why he does it is because there's a lost and dying world around you. And he wants them to know him.
So sometimes you're going to walk through hell. And the reason for that is so that through your experience and situation, God can bring somebody else into the kingdom because of the way that you faithfully walked through that time in your life. Because Jesus is about bringing people into a relationship with himself. And he wants to use you, his follower, his disciple, because your life matters, but the lost matter as well. So how do we live in a hostile world? Reject cultural idolatry around you. Recognize what it is. Refuse to compromise. Be built up. Be ready. Last, trust that God is going to deliver you. Not only for your sake, but because through your life, he will be glorified and someone else might come to faith in him. And he wants to use you to do that. Because he loves his creation. And he wants us to go and spread more and more about who he is to a world that doesn't yet know him. Let's pray. God, thank you for these stories of men and women who show us how to be faithful and stay true to you. Thank you, God, that you love us and that you're with us and that you promise to be with us in the fire. And God, we live in a messed up world right now. Our kids are growing up in a messed up place. And God, rather than retreat and hide, God, may we know how to stabilize them. May we know how to empower them. May we know how to equip them well with your word and with who you are so that they can be used by you to have an impact in someone else's life. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you again for that promise that you are always with us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you just work in the hearts and minds of our church here this morning. Reveal idols that people have in their life. Reveal ways that they need to stop compromising. Reveal ways that they need to trust in you. And God, may they hear that from a place of compassion and love. And God, provide for them the community of your body to support them. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this time to worship you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. As the Spirit works in your heart and your mind, I want to encourage you to just stand and we're going to sing this last song together.